Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Benson Chan. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest Community Church. Uh, I realize I only get to come up here like once a year, so some of you probably don't know who I am, but... So I just thought I'd give a, a brief introduction of myself. Like Chris said, uh, I am the youth pastor here. Uh, I'm one of the uh, pastoral interns at Harvest. And I've actually been coming to Harvest since uh, 2003. Uh, that's when I graduated college. And actually, I grew up in Toronto, Canada, which is the greatest city in the world, according to my unbiased opinion. Um, and then I went to high school and college uh, in Rochester, New York. I went to the University of Rochester. And I moved out here in 2003 when I graduated uh, because the economy wasn't as bad as it is now, but it, it was tough finding a job, and I only got one job offer. So it was like, it was pretty easy. Like, oh, God, I guess you want me to move to Chicago. Uh, I didn't actually, I didn't know a soul when I came to Chicago. And uh, I somehow heard about uh, Harvest Community Church through, through a friend, and I just started coming and I got plugged into small groups. I just kind of dove right into the to the community, and I eventually met my wife, Grace. She's over there. Uh, we got married. We have two kids. I have a daughter who's three. Her name is Eden, and a son who's one years old. He's uh, his name is Ezra. So, Pastor Frank isn't here. He's in charge of our community groups. But I want to just give give a plug to for you guys to get plugged into community groups, especially. I, I see a lot of college. Kids and young adults, if you're if you're single, you you could meet your future spouse. So, just like I did, uh, I so I'm I'm in charge of the youth ministry here, but I'm also in, in seminary. I started seminary uh, way back in the fall of 2007. I go to a school called Columbia International University. It's all the way out in uh, South Carolina, so I do it distance. I still work full time, and I I do classes online, and I try to take intensive classes. Uh, so it's now 2011, it's like four years later, and uh, I'm not even halfway done. So I, I tell people I'm on like the 10, 12-year plan. Hopefully, hopefully I'll be done before I'm 40. Uh, so today we're going to look in, in uh, Numbers chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to be reading from uh, the ESV. Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And when Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand 
and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. And thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. But nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned, turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. And therefore, say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. Uh, would you join me in prayer one more time? Father God, we just uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather here as a congregation to worship you uh, and to hear your word. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us at this time, softening our hearts, helping us to be attentive, uh, and helping our hearts to be malleable so that you can transform us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So my sermon is titled, if you can put up the... The slide, we have a drawing that Heath drew. I, I really like it because it kind of depicts the, the, the story really well. Uh, but I basically have two points to my sermon. One, it's right there, the offensiveness of sin. And the, uh, the other point is um, the greatness of God's love. And I just want to kind of walk us through the narrative and make some observations about the offensiveness of sin. Uh, but before we get dive right into the, the chapter, we have to give a little context of like what's going on. This is the book of Numbers, and, and where, where are we in the biblical narrative? And basically, the book of Numbers describes the Israelites. There's a lot of narratives that describe the Israelites um, after they left Egypt, right? They were in bondage before, but God, God did all these miraculous um, signs and, and wonders to release the Israelites from the control of Pharaoh. And then, you know, culminating in the, the parting of the Red Sea, and then the Israelites cross, and then he closes the sea, and all the, all the Egyptian soldiers die. And so, like, throughout this time, God has been performing a lot of miracles, interceding on behalf of the Israelites, protecting them and blessing them. And when he finally leads them out of, of Egypt into the wilderness, God establishes a, a covenant with them, right? He establishes a covenant relationship, basically a contract, and he says... I will be your God, meaning I will protect you, I will bless you, and you will be my people, meaning you will worship me. You will be faithful to me, you will walk with me, your heart will belong to me and no other God. And that was the stipulation of the covenant. And so we come to Numbers chapter 25, and what do we see, right? In verses 1 through 2, we see that the description of the Israelites, what did they do? They began to whore with the daughters of Moab, which is basically sexual immorality. And then they also began to yoke themselves with Baal. They began to worship Baal. They began to worship uh, an idol. And so the word whore, I mean, it's, a really, it's kind of like an offensive and, and a graphic word to describe the Israelites, but it's accurate. It's an accurate description of what is going on, and it's an accurate description of the offensiveness of sin. Right? Sin is offensive because it is 
it is an act of betrayal. It is an act of adultery towards a loving God. Right? God has been blessing Israel this whole time, but the, but the Israelites repay God by, by whoring, by, by uh, betraying him. And I think the, the image of a marriage depicts that very clearly. Right? And the Bible actually describes Israel or God's relationship to Israel as a marriage often. God is that loving husband that's caring and blessing and loving Israel. And Israel is that bride that, in response, like, whores itself. It, it just turns away from God and, and worships other idols. And so the actions here are a vivid depiture of sin as betrayal, as treason. And you, know, you might be thinking, well, you know, what the Israelites, yeah, I agree, what the Israelites did, that's bad. They, they, you, can, you can call them as whores, that, that's really bad. Um, but that's not really me. Like, I don't commit adultery, or I don't, I don't commit murder. I don't do anything really, really bad. And, and that's like, I feel like that's the cultural uh, perspective that we have. We kind of minimize sin. And like, sin just isn't that big of a deal. It's, we, we kind of summarize it like it's, it's, um, it's a series of bad choices or it's, it's, a, it's a mistake that I made. Um, and so when it comes to sin, I think we, we like to subscribe to the teachings of uh, the modern-day theologian, Britney Spears. Right? It's, oops, I did it again. And we, have, we love to make up these euphemisms for our sins. So like, yes, downloading a pirated movie, that's wrong. Oops. Or yes, I shouldn't lust after another man's wife. Oops. Or I know I shouldn't gossip about someone else behind their back or harbor any bitterness in my heart towards another brother. It's like, oops. And so, like, we either think that the sin only affects ourselves or it affects directly the person that we sin against, right? So if I, if I gossiped about you, then my sin only affects you because I gossiped against you. But the, the horror and the heinousness or the, the offensiveness is, of sin is not the actual act itself, but it's who the act is against, right? It's the, the nature is not really important, but it's who have you betrayed? Who have you sinned against? And when it comes to sin, what, what, the, what the big issue is we have sinned against a holy God, and that should bring us fear. That should, like, really sober us. And I think a good illustration is think of, um, like, think of Bobby here. He's my friend. We're, we're in ministry together. And let's say if Bobby just um, lied to me. He lied to me. Like, what, what do you think would be the consequences of Bobby lying to me? I mean, I would, I would just think he's a liar, right? And I would just, I probably wouldn't trust him with any sensitive information further. But it's not like we wouldn't hang out anymore. It's not like we wouldn't be friends. I'd still love him. We'd, we'd still be chill. But what if Bobby told the exact same lie to a federal judge? The exact same lie, but he told it to a federal judge uh, in, in, in a, some, some type of court proceeding, like, Bobby's going to jail. I mean, what, that's perjury. That's, that's a felony. He's going to jail for several years, and it's not going to be good for you in jail, brother. Uh, <laughs> and that's because, what? It's, it's because who the federal judge is, the power that the federal judge wields. He has authority over Bobby's life. He can sentence him to prison. I don't have the authority to sentence him to prison. So it, think about, now we put that in the context of a holy, perfect, and righteous God. Like how much more 
of an offense it is for us to sin against him and for us uh, to, to betray him. And I really like how R.C. Sproul describes it. He calls this act of betrayal as cosmic treason. I wish I came up with that. It's awesome. Cosmic treason. So sin is cosmic treason. And what he means by that is even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who rules and reigns over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. So think about also Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a very uh, popular psalm. It's like a David's confession psalm. Right? It's David's confession prayer after he is convicted and confronted by all his sins dealing with Bathsheba. Right? We all know that the story. Like David does a whole host of sins. Right? He, he doesn't go to war when he should have gone to war. He lusts after another man's wife. And then he acts on that lust by committing adultery with her. And then after that, he tries to cover it up by getting his, uh, her wife or her husband back to um, get him drunk to try to cover it up. But then that doesn't work, and so he ends up having to kill him and committing murder. And then he takes the wife as his own. It's like all those sins, all those heinous acts. And when he's finally convicted and finally confronted about those sins, in Psalm 51, what does David say? He says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because right? David understood that, that the offensiveness to, of the sin wasn't really against, against Bathsheba or against Uriah. Although, although those things are bad, but the, the big offense, what made it so horrible, what made it so heinous, was that he betrayed God. He betrayed a holy, a righteous God. And that's what makes sin so offensive. A sin is also offensive because it is basically contempt or hatred towards God. If we pick up the narrative starting in verse 6, right, we get this little description of while the people of Israel are in, they're basically at church because they're in front of the tent of meeting. So like, imagine a service like this, but except all of you are crying and weeping because, you, of, because of your sin. You're all convicted. And then in creeps like a church member in the back door, tiptoeing through people like sprawled out on the ground and they pitch a tent and they start, you know, the implication is they start having intercourse in, in, the, in the middle of like, God's presence, in the middle of everyone weeping. It's a pretty like graphic and offensive image, right? But that's, that's a, a vivid depiction of what sin is. Like to have the audacity, like these people to have the audacity to do that act in the presence of God shows they have contempt towards God because they're, they're ignoring God. They're like saying, God, I, we know you're here. We know you're watching, but we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. And I think a lot of us can relate to that, the way we live our lives and the way we, we go about. There's a lot of days, right, where we just, we just live our life ignoring God. And we say, and we, we go through the hustle and the bustle and the busyness of the day. And by the end of the day, we realize we haven't even set aside like a moment or a thought to bring God into the picture. And the Bible is describing that as, as hate, as contempt, because we, we are ignoring God. We don't want him to in our life. We don't want his rule and his reign and his authority to have any say in the way we live our lives. 
Another observation uh, about sin that we can make in this narrative is that sin demands atonement. Sin demands atonement or it demands uh, a blood sacrifice. Like if we were to take a survey, not just of the people here, but like just a survey of, of er- like a large group of people, and we were to ask them, you know, God is what? Like God is fill in the blank. Like what do you think most people would say? I would bet a lot of money, even though betting is wrong, that most people, like 90% of people would say, God is love, right? God is love. That's like the overwhelming perception, even among Christians, that, that God is love. God is this like warm and fuzzy deity that comforts you in your times of trial and pain. Uh, he's a God that loves you no matter what deficiencies you might have or or character flaws. He accepts you the way you are. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you because he loves you. You know, all those things are true. Those things are truths about God. That is God's character. But what if we were just, if that's all we said about God? Like, if we only define God as love, he was only love. Think about that for a second. Like, what would that make God out to be? I think it would make God out to be just like like a stuffed animal or a lucky charm because he just turns out to be this God that comforts you or meets your needs. You clutch onto him when you're going through times of trouble or you clutch onto him when you don't feel like you're being loved. And he turns out to be just this crutch. But that's an incomplete picture, right, of the nature and the character of God. God's holiness, God's holiness and his justice demands that his wrath be poured out on sinners. It demands that his wrath be poured out on sinners. Like how can a perfect and holy God allow any hint of sin to go unpunished, to go unatoned for? Uh, like a righteous God simply can't let sin, sin slide. He can't just sweep it under the rug. Let's go back to that judge analogy, the judge illustration, right? If I were to say, if, if you brought a convicted felon, a convicted murderer, right, in front of a judge, and he was supposed to sentence him, and the judge says, you know what, brother? I love you. You don't have to do your sentence. You're free to go. Like, what would you say about that judge? I know I would say he's, he's corrupt. And then you'd say, like, WTH, right? Because it's like, how can you let something like that slide? How can... A righteous judge who stands for justice, how can you let this person go unpunished? If you do, then you cease to be you cease to be just, you cease to be holy, and you cease to be righteous. And so, because of God's holiness and because of his righteousness, he has to punish sin. And the punishment of sin is always death. And that's why I like that illustration that Heath put up there with that like that blood spatter, because that's also a vivid depiction of the wages of sin. Right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so we look at verse 3, back into the narrative, where when, when God pronounces the, the whoredom of the Israelites, he sentences them. He, he pronounces a judgment, right? He says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And God tells Moses to hang them in the sun. 
And hang them in the sun is kind of, a, it's actually a kind of a euphemism. It's, it's more like impale them on a stick. You've seen those movies, right, in the old times where people would get impaled on a stick and then they just, they just lay them out on the street and it's like a sign that this is what happens to traitors. This is what happens to criminals. And that's kind of the, the picture that God is going for here. It's like impale these chiefs on a stick because what they have done is so offensive that it requires atonement, it requires death. Um, and then also going on, we get the story of, of Phineas, right? What does Phineas do? While the people are weeping and while a plague is, is spreading out among the community, lots of people are dying, right? What does Phineas do? Phineas ends up spearing these two, the Israelite man and the Israelite woman, and he spills their blood. And that's what stops the plague. The spilling of the blood is what stops the plague because sin requires atonement from a holy God. And so that's like kind of why I would just illustrate the, the seriousness of sin and how it's so offensive to God. But then we move on to the story of Phineas, right? And, and, and kind of the, the commendation that God gives to Phineas. And I think we get a little glimmer of hope. So Phineas was a priest, right? He's the grandson of Aaron. And his role as a priest is to be the mediator, right? He represents people to God. He represents God to the people. So he represents the people to God by offering them sacrifices, right? Priests back then would offer a lot of sacrifices to make atonement for the sin. And then he would represent God to the people by representing his holiness, his justice, and his character. And Phineas does exactly that in the story, right? He says his actions represent God, God is holy. God will not stand for this blatant sin, and so he does something about it, and he makes atonement. He sacrifices these two people, and he makes atonement um, for the whole community. And what God commends to Phineas is, you are zealous, or you are jealous for my name, and I commend you. I give you two thumbs up, well done. And what does that really mean? Like what, what does it mean to be zealous for God's name, to be jealous for God's name? God is basically saying, Phineas, you care more about my honor, you care more about my glory than you do anything else. Like my name and my honor is what you care about the most. And that's what I give you two thumbs up for. But I want to be careful here. And I don't want to say, I don't want you guys to go away thinking like the point of this sermon or the point of this whole story is to, we need to be like Phineas. We need to be like, like, like the message last week from Pastor Frank, the point of the Mary and Martha story is not we need to be more like Mary and less like Martha. I think if we came away with that um, application, it would be the wrong one. Like I, and I'm not that saying that we shouldn't aspire to be zealous for God's name as Phineas as aspires to be zealous. I mean, I actually wanted to name my son his name's Ezra, right? I wanted to name him Phineas precisely because of the story, because he was zealous for God's name. Obviously, I didn't win that battle. Um, but his middle name is Phineas. Uh, so it was kind of a compromise, because I, I really like that, and, and that's what, something we should aspire to. But I think to understand this story, in, in the, we have to understand the story in the context of the entire like biblical narrative. And basically what this story 
is doing, it's like a, a juxtaposition. How about that? High school English word. It's a juxtaposition of, like, on one hand, the seriousness of sin and just how offensive it is with the greatness of God's love on the other side. It's like when you highlight how offensive this thing is, the sin is, then you see how amazing, how great God's love is. It's kind of like superheroes, right? What good is a superhero if there's no villain to challenge them, right? What good is Batman without the Joker? What good is Superman without Lex Luthor, etc., etc.? And so that is what this story is about. And then you might be thinking, well, where, where in this story do we see God's great love? All I see is lots of people dying and lots of blood being spilled, right? I think we shouldn't be focusing on the fact that we need to be more like Phineas. We should be focusing on who Phineas represents. Like, what do Phineas' actions represent? And ultimately, the main point of this story is that it points to Jesus Christ. The actions of Phineas point to Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So you think about it. Phineas is a priest, right? He, he, he understands that God's wrath must be turned away. He understands that we, he has to make reconciliation uh, for the sin of the people to reconcile the relationship with God. And Phineas makes a sacrifice. Right? He kills those people. He makes a sacrifice to appease God. Well, Jesus is the great high priest, right? Jesus is the great high priest that makes the ultimate sacrifice that cleanses all of humanity, that cleanses all people of their sin. And he cleanses all the sin for all time, right? Phineas's sacrifice, Phineas's atonement is temporary, right? After, after the plague stops, it's not like the, the people are covered for the rest of their lives or for the for the rest of their journey. They go on, if you read the, the Bible, they keep on going sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning generation after generation after generation. That's because the atonement was temporary. But Christ, like it points to Christ's sacrifice that the one perfect sacrifice once for all covers sin, past, present, future. It's done. Think of also Phineas had to pierce sinners and he brought about their death. And then a little bit of an irony, like Christ, Christ was pierced by sinners, but his piercing brought about life, right? When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he was impaled on that cross, kind of the same imagery of the impaling we have here. He was impaled on the cross, and Jesus, the God the Father poured out all his wrath, all his punishment for all the betrayal of mankind, all the sin of mankind. And it was poured out on the body of Christ. And he bore that weight. He bore the punishment of all traitors, of all sinners, of all sin for all time. So if we think about what Phineas points to, then we understand that Numbers 25, it's not, a cool, it's not just a cool narrative about a lot of people dying. It's ultimately about the gospel. Numbers 25 is about the gospel. It's about how sin is so offensive to God that it demands death. It demands um, the unleashing of God's wrath. But because of God's great love for his people, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross to absorb the wrath. 
And so that when on judgment day, you know, when we face God, we have to give an account for our lives. Those of us that trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ as our saving grace, as our righteousness, we can point to Jesus and say, don't look at my life. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. And that's what this chapter, that's what this story is really about. So what is, what would be the appropriate response to all of this, right? The offensiveness of sin and the great love of God the Father. Well, to address the issue of the offensiveness of sin, I would say when you see your sin, like truly for what it is, as an act of betrayal, as an act of cosmic treason against a living, a living righteous and holy God, then you will weep over your sins, like the Israelites did in verse 6, right? When they understood just like the crimes that they committed and who they committed it against, they began to weep before the Lord. They fell down uh, weeping. Um, in James 4, 9, in the context of repentance, says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like when we really understand the wretchedness of our sins, it's, it's not, we, we can't help but to want to confess and to repent and lay before, uh, before God and say, we have betrayed you, we have messed up. You know, and, sometimes, and I recognize that sometimes it's, it's hard for us to do that. Like we don't always feel like we need to weep before our sins. We, I, I like to call it like a sense of, we have a sense of spiritual numbness. But then for those of us that grew up in the church, right, we just feel like this compulsion, we have to repent. Like that, and that's, what, that's what a good Christian does. We know that we're dirty, that we sin, and we need to repent. Um, and then sometimes if you do that, right, it just feels, it feels like you're checking off a bunch of lists on a box. It's like before you go to sleep, all right, God, uh, I did this, 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 and that. Okay, good night. And I'm sorry. Uh, if, if you find yourself in that kind of situation, in that state of, spiritual numbness, then I would just encourage you to pray and ask God to open your eyes. Like, help me, help me to see just how offensive my sin is. And as he opens your eyes, then you will be able to uh, repent correctly. And so then, in closing, the last, the application for, you know, the greatness of God's love, like, what do you do? How, how do you apply that? Or how do you apply the story of Phineas? And I said earlier, like, I think the incorrect application would be, I, I want to be more like Phineas. I, I need to try really hard to be more like Phineas. But ultimately, we do need to be more like Phineas, who points to Christ, right? We do need to become more like Christ. We do need to become transformed in the image of Christ, we need to become holy and set apart like Christ is. Uh, but how do we do that? Now, I just want to like, urge you guys to be really careful about like, those books or anyone that says like five steps to a path towards holiness. Like, those things are just flat out bogus in my opinion. Like, you could do all those five steps, but what happens if you don't become more holy? It's like, it's so man-centered, and it's all about you trying, trying, trying really hard, but you're ultimately going to fail. I think there's only one way 
to become more like Jesus. And I want to use uh, my favorite illustration, which I've used it before uh, in a children's sermon, and it's about Superman, my favorite um, comic book hero. And that is like, where does Superman derive his strength from? Like Superman derives his strength from the sun. Right? So as he gets closer and closer to the sun, he, co- he becomes more powerful. He becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And so it's the same way with us as Christians, as followers with Christ. The closer we get to the sun, Jesus Christ the sun, the stronger we become, the more we become like Christ, the more we are transformed into his image. That's the only way that we are ever going to become like Christ. Not through trying, trying, trying really hard, doing this five-step program, eight-step program, ten-step program. It's about drawing closer to Christ. And you might ask, well, how do you really draw closer to Christ? That sounds kind of like a, like a nebulous idea. And I say there's only really one way to draw closer to Christ, and that is you have to behold Christ. You have to see Christ for who he really is, for what he represents, and for what he's done for you. So even as we look into the scripture and we get a picture of the gospel, like that is one way that we draw closer to Christ. When Christ is revealed to us, his majesty, his awesomeness, his glory, his love for us, when all that is revealed to us and we see it and we behold it, that's how we become like Christ. I mean, I'll give you two examples of the Bible uh, to kind of prove that point. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, uh, 34, there's this description of Moses, right? Moses is on the mountain. He's on Mount Sinai. And he's basically spent a bunch of time just in the presence of God. And when he comes down from the mountain after spending all that time from God, his face is just shining. It's glowing because he has become transformed. He, in beholding God and seeing God, for who he really is, he was completely changed, completely transformed to the point where his face would shine so much he had to put a veil on it to cover it because people were like freaking out. Oh my gosh, it's just a shiny face. Put a veil over it. It's too much. And another point, another instance in the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, uh, where these two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus Christ basically appears before them and opens up the scriptures to them. What, what did these two disciples say at the end of that encounter after seeing Jesus? They said, oh my gosh, did our hearts not burn within us as he was opening up the scriptures to us? They were transformed because they basically walked with Jesus along this whole path. and They saw Jesus for who he really is. And so that, my friends, that is really the only way we become more like Christ. And that is the way think you should apply the gospel message that we see in the works of Phineas. So do, I mean, I'm not going to tell you you have to do this, you have to do that. I would just say, do whatever it takes to get yourself in the position to see God for who he is. I think that's different for everybody. Just do whatever it takes to consistently get into a place where you can behold God. The more you see, the closer you get. The closer you get, the more you become like Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to come before you humbly. And we thank you for 
um, the truths of your word. We admit, Lord, that, that some of these truths can be hard for us to swallow. Uh, they can be offensive to us. Um, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts and help us to, to really see how our sin is offensive, God. And I pray for those of us that may be going through seasons of numbness where we ignore you or we don't, we don't really feel like we're that offensive to you or we, we haven't really done anything to, uh, to upset you. But I pray that you would soften our hearts, tenderize our hearts to help us to see the nature of our sin. But don't just leave us there. As you accentuate the offensiveness of our sin, Lord, I pray that you would also accentuate your great love for us. Help us to see how, how much you love sinners like us, that you would go to the point to send your only son to die on the cross. And as we see that truth, as we see the picture of the gospel over and over again, I pray, God, that you would change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Benson Chan. So without further ado, here he is. 